Want a great idea for growing closer to God and your spouse at the same time? Or are you craving time with a small group but don't quite know what to study? How about love? What is Love is a book exploring four sermons Pastor Mike wrote about love, and I think you'll learn quite a bit. I know I did. The book also includes short Bible studies I wrote based on 1 Corinthians 13. What is Love is available this month at timeofgrace.org. Hello and welcome to Little Things with Amber Lee Swenson. Today we're finishing our series on April showers with an episode titled Raining Fire from Heaven. This is the less known account of Elijah and fire coming from heaven. Hey guys, it's Amber, wife, mother, warrior, type A child of God. Here at Little Things, we examine everyday issues from a biblical perspective with one simple goal, to know and love God more. Thanks for joining me. There's a better known account, but we're not going to talk about that just yet. We will get to that, but just not at the beginning. For now, we're going to start in 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahab and Jezebel are dead now. And if you don't remember, Ahab and Jezebel had brought Baal worship into the northern tribes of Israel. So if you think about John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, remember how Jesus' disciples were not super thrilled about going through Samaria. And mostly that was because the Samaritans had taken the first five books of the Bible and they had, they, they had those, but then they mixed it with the religions of the Assyrians and other people who had been brought in. And so they didn't have a true picture of what God was, of who God was, of what he had in mind. So they had this muddied sense of religion. And that all began really with Ahab and Jezebel and them bringing this Baal worship into Israel. So they had a son named Ahaziah. And he was, a, you know, chip off the old block, so to speak. The apple did not fall far from the tree with that one. He, we're told, fell out of a lattice of his upper window and was injured and lying in bed. So what did he do? He got his servants together and he sent them not to inquire of the Lord, not to seek God, but to go to Baal and to find out if he was going to live or die. Well, God let Elijah know what was going on. He told him to go intercept the messengers, which Elijah did, sent the messengers back to Ahaziah, and they said, oh, um, you're going to die. And he said, how did you get back so fast? And they said, oh, a man stopped us on the road, and he told us this was the message from God, you're going to die. And Ahaziah said, what, what man? And they said, well, he was wearing a garment of hair. He had a leather belt. And Ahaziah went, oh, Elijah. So Elijah went and sat on the top of a hill. And Ahaziah sent a captain and 50 men. And the captain called out, man of God. The king says, come down. And Elijah answered, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume your 50 men. And guess what happened? Fire came down from heaven. Ahaziah decided to send another captain and 50 men. And the same thing happened. And the third captain came 
And he looked at what had happened to the other two, and he fell on his knees. And he said, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men. And at that point, the angel of the Lord said, don't be afraid. Go ahead and go with him, Elijah. So Elijah went, and he said, is there no God in Israel that you did not seek God? But because you've done this, you will certainly die. Now listen, Ahaziah had had no regard regard for the one true God. His parents hadn't, but they were exposed to it. So you may be asking right now, why would a man of God call fire from the sky to destroy a hundred men? Well, let's look back at when Elijah had previously called fire from heaven. Now, at that time, Ahab wanted to kill Elijah. Ahab blamed Elijah for the three-year drought because in 1 Kings 17, Elijah had told Ahab that it wouldn't rain until Elijah said so. Now, here's the kicker. Ahab worshipped Baal, remember? Baal supposedly was the god of rain and dew. So if Baal really was a god, you would think all Ahab had to do is call on his god. And there would be rain on the land. There would be dew. There wouldn't be a need for hatred of of Elijah or anybody else because a real god doesn't care what anybody says about him. But that's not the way it went, because Baal is not a real god. So Ahab, instead of recognizing that maybe he was putting his faith in the wrong god, he determined that he needed to hunt Elijah, kill Elijah, and that would be the end of his troubles. So what happened? Well, after three years, Elijah presented himself before Ahab, and he said, you know what, today we're going to find out who's the real God. So he challenged Ahab to bring his prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah up to Mount Carmel. They both prepared an offering. The prophets of Baal and Asherah danced around. They cut themselves. They called. They screamed. They tried to get their gods to rain down fire from heaven to no avail. And then Elijah, he cut up his bowl. He put it on the altar he made. He doused it with water not once, not twice, but three times. And then he called out to God and God rained down fire from heaven and totally burned the sacrifice, the altar, everything up. Now, at that point, how would you think Ahab would react? How would he respond? Would you not fall down and worship God? Would you not repent, turn and say, clearly, this is the real God. Why was I chasing these other gods for so long? But that's not what Ahab did. Ahab told Jezebel and Jezebel in turn said, before the day is over, you, Elijah, will be dead. Well, Ahaziah, as I said, was a chip off the old block. And he responded exactly the same way. You would have thought at the very mention of fire from heaven, 
with the captain and the first 50 men, Ahaziah would have said, the God of Elijah is the one true God. What am I doing trying to consult Baal? What am I doing trying to go against Elijah? But is that what happened? Nope. So what can we take away from this account? First of all, God may ask us to do some really hard things. Elijah confronted first Ahab, and then Elijah was sent to confront Ahaziah. This was not an easy assignment. They were steeped in idolatry, and they really could care less what God said. They didn't want to listen, and both thought the problem really was Elijah, not their idolatry. Not the fact that their hearts were stone and they didn't change. But the problem really was just Elijah. If you would just fall in line and worship like the rest of us, then we wouldn't have these problems. God may call us to confront some people we would rather not. I don't know about you, but I love the whole idea of being comfortable I don't like the idea of going to someone who I like or someone who I've worked with in the past or someone who's, you know, supposed to be following God and saying, hey, I'm a little worried or have you thought about or you know what God says? Because just like Ahab, just like Ahaziah, there's a fairly decent chance that they may get mad at you. Listen, we know that Elijah was afraid with this whole account of the captain and the 50 men coming to Elijah. How do we know that? Because when that third captain came to him and fell on his knees and asked him to have respect for his life, the angel of the Lord said, do not be afraid, Elijah. There's probably a pretty good chance that apart from God, that if those 50 men had come and retrieved Elijah and brought him to Ahaziah with the message that Ahaziah did not want to hear, there is a good chance that Ahaziah could have just killed Elijah. As much as we want to be comfortable, sometimes God asks us to do some really hard things. And anymore, I, I think that just teaching what's in the Bible is hard in and of itself. There may have been a time, and I don't know, because there's nothing new under the sun. So maybe it was always difficult. Maybe it was always, you know, hard. But it seems like there was a day when Christianity was more accepted, when you could go to church, you could teach the word of God and its truth and purity, and you weren't confronted so much for by societal norms. But those days are long, long gone. We are more living in the days as described in Genesis 6, like the days before Noah, the days of Noah, the days before the flood, when people just do what they want, believe what they want. They don't necessarily want to hear the truth. So, God may ask us to do hard things. But number two, 
you can trust God to be with you even when you're called to do hard things. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. That doesn't mean the outcome is always going to be favorable. Look at these instances with Elijah. Ahab didn't turn. Jezebel didn't turn. Ahaziah didn't turn. Some of the people turned at Mount Carmel. Look at that third captain who came. I think he may have had faith in God. He certainly at least knew that God had the power and the ability to rain fire from heaven. So just because you do what God says you'll, you know, ask you to do, you may not get the outcome that you want, but God is going to be with you anyway. If we look at in the New Testament, John the Baptist, Stephen, the Apostle Paul, they all died as martyrs. In the Old Testament, King Joash became king at seven years old, and there was a wonderful godly priest, Jehoiada, who helped him. And as long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash did what was right. But as soon as he died, Joash went astray. And Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, confronted the people, confronted King Joash, and said, guys, you're going in the wrong direction. Go back, turn back to the Lord, turn back to what is right, and guess what King Joash did. He had him stoned to death. The son of this faithful priest who had helped him all the days of his life. He killed him. But here's the deal. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to wonder why we tried so hard for so long to stay on earth. God is with us, whatever the outcome. He's going to strengthen us to do the job. He's going to comfort us through his word. He's going to remember what we did and that we stood and we did hard things. Even if it means something bad, there's some consequences that we have to endure. And number three, everything in the Bible is there for a reason. There are some really, really hard messages in the Bible. I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and there are some things I would rather not talk about. But every time I come across them, I just ask God the same question. God, what do you want me to take away from this? I pray, I read, I consult other people, I consult the commentaries, and then I go on. A while ago, a friend texted me and asked if I'd have coffee with her, and I met her for coffee, and she said that she had been listening to an audio Bible, and she was halfway through Genesis, and she's like, Amber, these people are so messed up. (laughs) And I just started laughing. I said, oh, yeah. Just wait till you get to this part and this part and this part. And when you get to the book of Judges, we are definitely, definitely going to need to meet for coffee more often. God worked through the weak, the broken, the simple, the crazy. Some people learned, some people turned to God, and some people lived in their unbelief like Ahab and Ahaziah. Some trusted God. Some were pretty weak in their faith. Some went ahead of God and suffered the consequences. There were generational sins that you see 
multi-generations falling into. But all of these things are things that we see in society today because, again, there's nothing new under the sun. And why does God put these things in there? He puts them in there to give us hope, to remind us we're not alone, to remember that, you know what, as bad as it looks, somehow, some way, some good may come out of it. I just finished teaching the account of Joseph to my Bible history class. And every single time that I teach this, it is just such a great reminder that families can be incredibly broken. There was jealousy. There was hatred. There was daddy favoring one child over the other. There was such hatred that they sold Joseph. The brothers sold Joseph just to get him out of their lives. And then Joseph had, you know, risen to this place of prominence. And just when he thinks, you know, things are going pretty well, Potiphar really trusts me, you know, I'm second in charge and this is going great. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and he ends up worse off than he was before. How many times don't we see that in our own lives? You're doing the right thing and you suffer for it. Like you've got to be kidding. God, I'm following you. But that wasn't the end of the story. There were the dreams that Joseph interpreted in prison and putting the hope in the cupbearer that the cupbearer would be able to pluck him out of the prison. But that was misplaced hope because the cupbearer went to his position and forgot about Joseph for two full years. But then, all of a sudden, in one day, there was a reversal of fortune. Everything changed. Joseph interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. He was made second in command. And you know, that was, was one thing. But there was this deep, deep hurt. There was major trauma in Joseph's life. And you don't hear about it until seven years later, which by the way, it was 22 years after Joseph had been sold. All of a sudden, his brothers show up looking for grain. And Joseph sees them and he recognizes them. And can you imagine the trauma that he felt looking at those brothers? And he put them through a series of tests. And he realized in those tests that even when he shows favoritism to Benjamin, the brothers wouldn't leave him behind. He realized that his brothers had, for those 22 years, come to a place of repentance, that they had felt guilt, that they knew what they had done was wrong. And all of a sudden, there was reconciliation. 22 years later. That should give some of you hope. I've been in a situation where a family has been very, very broken. And five, eight years goes by and you think nothing's ever going to change. And then all of a sudden, one thing, one thing is the impetus that just changes everything and things start falling into place. And all of a sudden, after all the hurt, after all the brokenness, there's restoration. James Merritt said the primary purpose of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible, but to know God. Elijah 
in worldly terms, he was nothing. He wasn't any major person. Ahaziah, he was the most powerful person in the land. And yet, Elijah with God was incredibly powerful. And God doesn't leave his servants behind. George Mueller, I don't know if you know him. I've brought him up different times. When I read his autobiography, it just made such an impact on my life. He did incredible, amazing things for God. It's a great read if you ever get the chance. He started out his teen years living pretty wildly. And he wasn't following God. And then he turned. And he has this to say. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole, with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for 47 years and have read through the whole Bible about 100 times and always find it fresh when I begin it again. Thus, my peace and my joy have increased more and more. There are some pretty difficult things in the Bible, but I just want to encourage you not to shy away from them. Read through the whole Bible, every single part of it. Read it, study it, love it. I guarantee it'll change you. This has been Little Things, because in God's kingdom, the little things are the big things. My friends don't have to wonder what I like or don't like, because you may have guessed this about me, but I'm not one to keep the good stuff for myself. If you know someone who would benefit from this episode, send it to them. And then meet for coffee, and four hours later, you'll both have a new attitude on life. Or maybe that's just me. Either way. Thanks for being here and have a great week.